the New Media Consortium. The NMC is a consortium of more than 200 leading colleges, universities, museums, corporations, and other learning-focused organizations dedicated to the exploration and use of new media and new technologies. We are now live. I was live before. I don't know about you people. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to the NMC Conversations. I'm Rachel Smith from the New Media Consortium, and uh, I'm really pleased to be doing this again. Last time, we had a conversation about uh, activities around the Horizon Report, and we're going to continue the Horizon Report theme this time. We're going to focus on one topic. We're going to talk about new scholarship. Here on the call with me are Larry and Alan from the New Media Consortium. Hi, guys. Hi, Rachel. Hey, Rachel. Glad to be here. Well, sorry, we're talking over each other in tandem. <laughs> in stereo. And we also have a special guest this time. We have Brian Alexander, who's the Director for Research of the National Institute for Technology and Liberal Education, or Knightley. Brian has been on the board of the Horizon Report for the past three years, so he's a major contributor and shaper of the way the report comes out. Brian, welcome to the conversation. Greetings, and uh, welcome to everybody else. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So could you tell us a little bit, Brian, about what you're up to these days? Well, I'm uh, right now doing several different functions with Knightley. Uh, as the director of research, one of my responsibilities is what we refer to as environmental scanning. So I keep an eye on new developments in technology insofar as they impact teaching and learning on a small liberal arts campus. So I, I have a kind of general net thrown wide over the whole world. The uh, second part of this is that I have a portfolio of a few different topics that I specialize in. One of them is Web 2.0 and learning. Uh, second one is gaming and learning. And the third one, which has been kind of quiet for a couple of years but might be coming back, is wireless and mobile computing and learning. Uh, so I, I focus on those um, in order to show what I've learned, in order to share what we discover. I do a few different functions. Uh, I hold workshops at nightly affiliated campuses. I blog. I publish in traditional formats and digital formats. I also do a lot of networking and outreach to other institutions and other sectors. Sometimes this involves talks at other venues. Um, for example, most recently I've been to venues as diverse as the University of Michigan and the Special Forces Headquarters University. Uh, I also do collaborations with other folks like say, the NMC Horizon Project. Uh, I've got a few new projects uh, coming down the pike. Um, I'm not going to say any more about those right now, but check the nightly blog and, and you'll see them soon enough. Well, I tell you, we're, we're just so pleased to have you on the call today with us, Brian. Uh, we've, of course, been working with you for many, many years, and the work of nightly um, intersects with or parallels the work of the NMC um, all the time. And so several of the initiatives that you mentioned, the educational gaming, the NMC also is uh, is very involved in as well. So we're really happy to have you uh, with us today. I, we began talking with you and Knightley about uh, looking at new scholarship, perhaps collaboratively, back in October, if you recall when we had that as the focus of our regional conference in San Antonio. Um, and I know that Knightley has a, has a great interest in that. And then, of course, as a blogger, um, you know, all of us follow, follow both you and the, and the Knightley blog a lot. 
and and are always looking for the new insights that can be found there. Yeah, and actually, um, I, I tend to forget. I think Brian's work is is of such interest to what we do that I just I feel like he's in NMC, although um, you know Knightley is not officially a member. Uh, just the the parallels and uh, the overlap. And, um, you know, his uh, actually I follow him more on his InfoCult blog where uh, he he covers an amazing uh, spectrum of uh, technology, culture, gothic stuff um, and all kinds of things um, from parts of the Web that I don't really get to see. So he's a valuable part of my network through his blog and and these days also uh, through the kind of. Chaotic, maybe questionable, but um, interesting environment uh, of Twitter. So I guess one thing is, um, you know, how you look at your work on um, your blogging, uh, Brian, as this uh, level of scholarly work. And, you know, there's some question among some people about, you know, what that is. But, you know, what I see you doing is, you know, um, uncovering interesting things, documenting them and um, composing them. But you also, you know, you publish traditional articles and do uh, more uh, standard scholarly work. And, and I'm wondering where you kind of see, um, you know, where this blogging, now that blogging is not anything novel anymore, is kind of um, moving towards in the realm of scholarship. That's a great question. And uh, thank you for the nice words with InfoCult. Uh, InfoCult has a very strange and diverse audience. Um, I have a Bulgarian following that I can't quite explain, but I'm, I'm very <laughs> glad to see, for example. Um, I, I think blogging right now, uh, I do this and uh, Knightley does this for a few reasons in, under the rubric of scholarship. One is that, as you say, it's a great way for us to share things that we've found. Um, we could, there are other venues for doing that, uh, such as Twitter, such as social bookmarking. But blogging has a few more affordances to it. One is that uh, you have the comment feature, so we can always gather responses from the world, which is excellent. Uh, second is that it gives us the time to annotate, explore, and expand on what we find. But what's interesting is that there's this perpetual problem in studying the blogosphere. Uh, Valdis Krebs has done tremendous work on this, which is, is the blogosphere an echo chamber or not? That is, do we tend to only blog about what we agree with, what we like, what we find interesting, and ignore the rest? Um, one of the things that we found is that uh, bloggers tend to link to things they can't stand. They link to their enemies. They link to the opposites. They link to things in order to disagree with them. Uh, so we're, we're really learning a lot about, about the broad nature of blogging. There really is social networking beyond immediate affiliations. Another reason that we, that we blog is because it, it provides a wonderful lived archive of our passage through time. We can look back over a year, over two years, and see what we've been interested in. It's like looking at a diary in some ways, but a very public one, so that we can get a perspective on issues that we found a while ago and went nowhere, which is useful to know. We can also see just when we started paying attention to some things. On top of this, we've been researching how people blog, um, how they use it in teaching and learning and in scholarship, and it's great to be blocking the talk at the same time. Um, one way that blogging fits into scholarship is that it's a great way to, if you will, workshop ideas, language, approaches. If you can put out an idea, a thesis, an observation, and get feedback, that's, that's a, an excellent way to use a blog to build your own scholarly work. Uh, a second way is, I mentioned the perspective you get over time from the lived experience of a blog. 
you can go back and see how your own ideas have changed. There might be concepts that you put out that actually, in retrospect, look quite powerful and you can use to revise what you've done. And there are limitations to this. Um, there are some cases where your research you, is of such a nature that you don't want to share it. Perhaps it is controversial in the way that you find socially counterproductive. Perhaps you wish to approach your research under the head of intellectual property protection, such as a patentable formula. Um, you know, blogging doesn't work for all scholarly uses, but for right now, it's definitely a very powerful adjunct. I'm just wondering, um, to, I know we want to get to the, the topic of our talk, um, about you know, the acceptance and any signs of recognition in academia. Uh, of this and, and two things leap to my mind. Um, you know, Jacob Nielsen's uh, article uh, about you know that experts should write articles, not not blogs. And at a recent event I was at among some faculty, more than a few said they don't feel comfortable blogging until they're tenured. Yeah, there are a lot of obstacles um, for the greater apperception and adoption of blogging uh, among scholars. And the second one is, I think, the larger one. That is, we, we still have this kind of chicken-and-the-egg problem with scholarly promotion, tenure, and review when it comes to blogging and, and scholarship. That is, we don't see a lot of examples of people getting promoted in part because of their blog. We don't see enough examples of people getting tenured in part because of their blog. And because we see fewer examples, that makes people slightly disincentivized in terms of doing it themselves, which means there are fewer cases, which means fewer opportunities for these to actually be rewarded and so on. It's kind of like the, the junior high school dance where you have all the boys on one side, all the girls on the other side, and no one wants to make the first move. Uh, the first problem is... I think actually, you'll find that junior high school has changed these days. <laughs> yeah, okay, so that, was, that, was a, that was a historical <laughs> comment rather than a political one. Yeah, we all, but, we but all hey, definitely but, got it. But you know, yeah. I said junior high. I didn't say middle school, right? I've already dated myself. Uh -huh. My, my know, daughter is 12. I'm being very practical about these things. Oh, yeah. Well. But, but the, the Nielsen comment is, is, a, is in, in some ways a less powerful one, but a very subtle one. If you haven't read the article, Nielsen argues that scholarly thinking, and, and also he also argues for more sustained writing like deeper journalism, requires greater length rather than a, a snapshot format. And there are, there are a lot of problems with this. I mean, one is that blogging is deeply heterogeneous. People feel free to blog a two-sentence post or a 3,000-word post. Moreover, you have formats where people are blogging pieces of a longer work, I, for myself, for example, have been blogging the entire novel of Dracula. This is now the third year. Okay, that's, that's, that's a scholarly edition. But you can find works like Pulse, where an entire scholarly peer-reviewed book are being blogged in pieces. Um, I mean, there are many technological affordances for this. You could take a look, for example, that live journal, which has the cut. There are many ways that you can do this. Um, I, I think Nielsen is too shallow in his characterization of uh, blogging. There are a few other problems, though, uh, which which are, are, are worth addressing. Do, do you mind if I get ahead of us on this, or should I come back? Yeah, go ahead. Well, well one, one major problem is what I've been nicknaming the great divide in, in uh, digital architecture and digital politics and uh, the world of, of culture and academia, which is the divide between the open web and the closed web, uh, the, the web of web 2.0 of of wild and woolly conversations rippling across the world and the world of silos uh, where you have content that is in some way inaccessible to the larger world. 
uh, this is a divide that has rapidly erected itself and that in academia we still don't have really substantial conversations about it. In fact, I would argue the majority of our campus's populations participating in this divide have already seen their careers shaped and inflected by the structures of this divide, yet have not actually made conscious choices about it. And that's something which we really, really need to fix. So, for example, if uh, someone is blogging uh, behind a password, which is you know, trivially easy to do. Almost every platform supports this. Does that count as a blog? Well, there's a definitional question for blog studies, but also for practical studies. How do we know? You know is this going to actually account for it? If a faculty member realizes that there's this divide, are they incentivized to publish their material in a dark archive, uh, say in a repository on campus for which only people with an IP address can look? Uh, are they going to think, well, that 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 interesting handout with some new work. Should I put that on the open web or should I put it in a blackboard space? I mean, to one extent, we have this growing body of work that is not accessible to the larger world, and we don't even know how big it is. We don't know how much research is locked away and space is guarded by blackboard. We don't know how much original work is uh, hidden in, in closed repositories, and we have no way of knowing based on their very yeah. nature. Well, that, that's an interesting point. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn the conversation a little bit, if, if I may, Brian, um, because I think that one of the things that, that we're seeing is um, people tend to talk about this new scholarship in terms of technologies, you know, and, that's, and we've been doing that just now. We've been talking about blogs as a category. Um, where traditionally scholarship has been thought of as uh, as as an activity, as a collection of of thoughts and ideas that are expressed, and so in one way, talking about blogging as a as a form of new scholarship is kind of like talking about should I use a typewriter or a pencil? Um, you know, it's the ideas I think that that uh, that. Almost anyone would would agree. I think is what constitutes how you tell good scholarship. But what's new today is the possibility to engage these technologies around those ideas, so that blogs uh, are not just one way. You're able to get responses on blogs, but then there are also interesting things. Um, if we just expand from blogs to the larger web, in the way that you can visualize data that can't be done on a printed page, you know, flash graphs, the kinds of things um, that uh, Helmut Rohr is doing uh, with the um, mm -hmm. longitudinal mm -hmm. studies of, uh, Population. of populations, yeah, um, that make those data so easy to understand, uh, whereas if they were you know, buried in tables, even a very prestigious, well-read journal, I don't think that the same kinds of, of understanding could happen. And then my final point on this is, and isn't that really what, what research is all about in one way, is to catalyze even further research. And so to the extent that we can use these new mediums to uh, to solicit ideas from from the field in response and visualize things a little bit better, uh, that's that's the exciting promise of all of this. Well, yes and no to every one of your points. I, I do want to come back to your first point. Uh, I do think it's important not to think in terms of strict technological determinism. That is, you know, should I use uh, pencil, paper, or should I use pen and paper? Is it number two pencil or number one pencil? <laughs> um, 
<laughs> but I, I think we've already had uh, detailed politics around this before. Um, we've, been, for example, if you think about the creation of scholarly journals, uh, which until recently took a lot of capital. So deciding should I publish a disciplinary journal or an interdisciplinary journal um, was a major issue. Uh, not to mention which kind. Uh, the cost of journals, of course, have famously driven the spread of knowledge. But I, I, I do think it's, it's important to, to break the question back from two into one. Is it technology or is it what we do with it? Well, the, the, the fact is that the technology gives us affordances to use. Um, the technology shapes what we do with it, and it's important to see those two combined. Uh, so, for example, I mean, taking a look at blogging, it matters how we think about who sits on a promotion committee. It matters how we think about who's writing about this at the Chronicle. It also matters what the software lets us do. You know, I mean, the, the, if you take a look at instant messaging, uh, there's a huge uptick in adoption of instant messaging once instant message platforms enabled easy archiving of conversations. Now, the technology change that drove a whole series of adoption issues. Which brings me to your, to your, your second point. Um, there are a no, galaxy of new forms of scholarly publication available. If you think about publishing a GPS data set by itself, we, we've had antecedents for this before. It's impossible to publish, say, charts and tables from astronomical observations. But now I can take your GPS data set and, uh, or your GIS data set, excuse me, and plug it into my copy um, from Esri on my desktop and manipulate it and then add something new and perhaps send it to you or publish it in a blog or publish it as a, a derivative work. Uh, there's a whole, a whole series of, of, of exciting options. To your third point, I think the social one is in many ways one of the most powerful, and that's one that we are still beginning to process. I think the great divide that I described really turns on this. We're not always thrilled at the idea of increased feedback, of increased networking, increased socialization of our work. Scholarship is indeed deeply, deeply about promulgating knowledge. But at the same time, we've also had traditions that go against that and mitigate it. The ivory tower tradition is a real one. You look at the University of Paris, one of the reasons why it became an independent authority for a long time was to protect its scholars from the mob and the local government. Um, if you look you know, right through the 20th century, through the politics of the United States, we've jealously protected tenure in order to protect people. Not always well, but in many cases we're failure, failed. But, um, but we have the sense that scholarship is something to be conserved as well as to be shared. Uh, I mentioned IP, and uh, not just copyright, but specifically patent issues. It's another case where people are jealous about, literally jealous about their scholarship. Um, I, I once taught a digital scholar, digital narrative, digital storytelling workshop where a scientist did a wonderful five-minute video clip about his chemical work. And he insisted that I only show it to people once it got accepted for publication. And it did, and I've been showing it ever since. But you know, there is the, the dynamic is a tricky one. Uh, there, there are all sorts of other issues, too. I mean, the politics of this, what, you know, certain research has political ramifications depending on where you are. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, a top of this. <laughs> uh, there are whole layers of, of, of issues with the social spread of, of knowledge. Uh, one more is that we, in the United States, we have had a hard time grappling with the culture of the public intellectual. Uh, if Larry Johnson becomes the next great scholar in Texas history, 
Well, the Texas historians value the work that he does when he speaks on NPR. Do they value the work he does when he speaks in front of the Texas legislature? Uh, the Carl Sagan syndrome. Exactly. I mean, if you talk to uh, Carl Sagan, is a great example because this is a guy who did more for the spread of science than any human being in the past 75 years. And he's probably the most reviled scientist in the same period. I mean, it, it just simply because Cosmos changed lives. It changed our culture. And it's, you know, people spit up at what he did. I mean, it's a tremendous, tremendous split. Well, academia is not immune to uh, the internecine kind of rivalries that, uh, well, that it's, we it's, see in other generally fields. Speaking, yes, they are internecine, but also there's the sense that a scholar who speaks to the public is dividing their time. They're not doing serious work. And that's a perception which technology can enable, um, but that's one that also is part of, of new scholarship. If Larry Johnson, the great Texas historian, publishes a GPS data set of, say, the uh, area around Austin, oh, I think most scholars would have a great time checking that out, testing its validity, and using it. But if he publishes a wiki about his conclusions and invites the world to edit it in order to help shape, you know, is this, uh, is this too public? It's a good question. Yeah. You know, and that's, that leads to um, the final um, question that we have, which I'm going to I'm going to uh, toss to Rachel because she's itching to get in here about Thanks, when, when we might see all this. So take it away, Rach. Thanks. Um, yeah, Brian, a lot of the points that you just made are um, are so important and have such an impact on the way scholarship is done and has been done and, and will continue to be done. And as you know, in the Horizon Report, new scholarship is placed on the long-term horizon where it'll be four to five years before these kind of practices are mainstream. Um, and what I'd like to know is, are, are the trends that you're seeing um, consistent with that? Is that? Do you think it is four to five years out or not? I think four to five years, we might see about a 33% penetration in terms of production. Um, that is, maybe a third of United States campus faculty uh, producing digital scholarship. And um, I think to cross over into the larger adoption curve, either side of the bell curve, you know, we're talking about 60, 70, 80 percent, I think it might take closer to a decade. And there's some powerful demographic forces that have to move, and they move a little more slowly than technology. Um, but there's also, uh, there's also the time of research where it simply it, it takes a lot of time to produce a scholarly monograph or to really track a certain population in the wild. Uh, I do think, though, that what we will see within that curve is the flip side of this. Uh, when I've been speaking with people on nightly affiliated campuses across the U.S., they're very keen on making a difference between production and consumption. That is, the scholars producing data sets and, and putting up large data sets on the web versus uh, scholars who are consuming digital scholarship and of course students consuming the digital scholarship. In a sense, as Google rewards Web 2.0 and, and as students continue to be digital creatures, our students are already consuming digital scholarship to the extent that they can get to it. Um, and our faculty, I think, increasingly are. So within four to five years, I think you'll definitely see the majority of our faculty um, accessing digital scholarship, taking a look at it, and even at the high-end stuff, looking at simulations, downloading 3D models of human at QuickTime, perhaps 
visiting a, a lab site on Second Life where someone has built molecules hundreds of meters long and uh, poking around there. Uh, so I think the consumption curve will advance before the production curve does. But, you know, compared to, you know, things we have on the horizon, uh, this one, is, it's a little bit different. It, it's broader and it touches all the other horizons, and it, it's a little bit more difficult to get your hands around than uh, being able to look at, uh, you know, multiplayer educational gaming or virtual worlds, um, which are, you know, a little bit closer to being about technology. The the scholarship just has so many things that it, it reaches beyond technology to uh, how we work, um, our social structures. It, it's big. Yeah, I think I think that's uh, the takeaway I'm going to have today, Brian, from your observations is that we're really talking about um, a social change when we're talking about new scholarship. I think we're talking about uh, a change in the way that we perceive the very act of knowledge generation and, and knowledge catalyzation. Um, and so your your predictions about the timeline, I think, are are, are dead on. Um, but one of the things that is interesting about the Horizon Project is, you know, we do talk about timelines for things entering the mainstream. You mentioned 33%. I actually think that's a little high. Um, when when we're thinking about what do we mean by that, you know, we've got the classic um, bell curve that everybody's familiar with, Roger's work from Arizona on the diffusion of innovation. Um, it's about 16% where most things just don't reach any further penetration, any further penetration. If you can get into the 20-25% range, you're, you're actually in the mainstream at that point. And it could take decades, as you observed, uh, for it to, to really become ubiquitous. Um, very, very few things actually have made it to the 80-90%. Um, so, I think... Well, I think email, I, and that's a, a big step. Yeah. And yeah. One, one, you have to take a look, I think... Um, one of the issues here that I mentioned in terms of the Great Divide is also recognizing certain things as digital scholarly activities. I mean, mm. the whole HNET uh, series of professional email listers uh, for scholarly purposes, uh, for example, has been around since the 1990s, and that's a you know it's a solid network of software yeah. scholarly work is yeah. shared, discussed. I, I think the 20% is good. I I think it, it matters in part which 20%. Uh, if you're talking in terms of scale-free network analysis, if the 20% are the hubs, the connectors, then this might take off. And one thing you might see uh, along those lines is certain disciplines really taking off and others not. So you might see... Yeah, I agree with that. Foreign language, you know? Yeah, I think, uh, the, I think the sciences are, are actually pretty far out in front on some of this simply because the pace of change in those fields... Um, is is really driving the way that they think about how they how they distribute their knowledge. Well, it's, so it's, it's a pace of well, change, Larry. I agree. It's a huge, huge issue. And in fact, uh, Connecticut College did this great project where they insisted in public they had visiting scientists speak about new developments in their fields, and the publication for those speeches was CD-ROM. And the reason for that was they didn't want to maintain something on the web because it would be out of date within a year. They liked the time-bound nature of the mm. disk. Wow. I'm sorry, Rachel. Well, this is, you know, I was just going to say this is definitely um, something that we're all going to keep following with interest as it yeah. changes it, and moves. And 
Oh, yeah, and, and I think, too, that uh, organizations like Nightly and uh, to the extent that we can, the NMC is hoping to to uh, try and do some things like like that is to help people understand what where the what's good. You know, where how do you recognize quality in some of these things that are all so new? Well, that's so something that, that came up in nightly conversations was, you know, should other groups serve as advocates uh, for digital scholarship because there's no other body that will do it. And I'm willing to uh, maybe start collecting the bets. Um, so digital um, and new scholarship, are we at 33% in four to five years? Who wants to take 20%? <laughs> we'll get it We'll get it up at Vegas. <laughs> okay, so uh, I, I guess that makes Alan the new scholarship bookie. <laughs> Keep in mind that uh, uh, a recent Ithaca survey, which was taking a look at faculty attitudes towards libraries, had faculty use of blogging at, and Web 2.0 tools at between two and four percent. So wow. this this made this made there's a ways longer. to go. Larry, I think I think your point about collaborative groups is is really enormous. I think uh, if you saw the Ithaca study on uh, scholarly publication, one of the points they were keen to make uh, is that they think that some some activities um, in, in scholarship are going to move towards interinstitutional collaborative platforms simply because it no longer makes sense economically to have some things redundantly repeated across, say, multiple university presses or multiple campuses. They also call for, let me see if I can find this, uh, a third-party enterprise or at least a catalytic force in order to enable a whole list of functions for marshalling resources, helping institutions find their place in new systems, leading the community towards shared visions of scholarly communication landscapes, and so on. I just wanted to thank you very much for your time today. Brian has joined us from his home in rural Vermont. Brian, I'm pleased to say, is down for another year on the advisory board of the Horizon Report, so we'll continue to have your insights. And if you haven't read the Horizon Report and you'd like to find it, you can find it at horizon.nmc.org. And Brian, of course, blogs at infocult.typepad.com. Thank you so much, Brian, for joining us today. And don't forget the Nightly homepage, where the Liberal Education Today blog can be found right there on the page. Absolutely. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Larry and Alan. And thank you, Rachel. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you, Alan. And thank you, Larry. <laughs> Until right. next time. All right. Bye-bye. Bye now. Thank you for listening to this new Media Consortium podcast. You can learn more about the NMC and access more content at our website, www.nmc.org.